So today on the show, I'm joined by Louise Betancourt, Professor of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Chicago and external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Now, this episode is all about cities. And if you haven't listened to our episodes on scaling with Jeffrey West, then I suggest you probably go back and have a listen to them first, because we're going to build on a lot of those ideas. We're going to build specifically on superlinear scaling and sublinear scaling. So it's probably worthwhile just taking a minute and reminding ourselves what they are. So sublinear scaling is all to do with the physical aspects of a system or a city, like the infrastructure and the length of the roads. And what we find is that if we double the size of a city, in other words, if we increase it by 100%, we don't actually need to increase these physical factors by 100%. We only need to increase them by about 85%. So we get this 15% saving when we double the size of a city. That's sublinear scaling. Now, when we go to superlinear scaling, this tends to be related to the social aspects and the social networks that are in cities. So the number of patents that a city produces, or the wages that people in that city typically receive. And what we find with superlinear scaling, as the name suggests, is that if we increase the city size by 100%, we actually get more than 100% because of superlinear scaling. We get about 115%. So we get this 15% bonus on many of these good things like patents and wages. Then we also, because we're on the social side of things, we also get bad things like more disease and more crime and issues like that. But these two concepts of superlinear scaling and sublinear scaling are going to be really important in today's discussion with Luis because we're really going to pull cities apart, how they work, why they work the way they do, what's good about them, what's bad about them. We're going to talk particularly about slums and the challenges there is in raising people out of poverty. So with all that, here is Louise. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Louis, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure, Sean. We're going to have a chat about cities in this episode, but just for the listener, we've obviously talked about cities quite a bit with Jeff West. Do you want to start with where your work comes from and how it fits into that? You know, at a personal level, I've always been very interested in people and social transformations. I grew up in Lisbon in Portugal at a time where the whole society was turning over. We had sort of a dictatorship before that, and in sort of the 70s and early 80s, there was a complete transformation of society, many people arriving, strong urbanization, quite a poor country with not a lot of infrastructure to begin with, but then a very fast transformation. And my parents were quite involved with social action and nonprofits and so on. And so I was very interested in terms of what was happening just around me. I wasn't reflecting too deeply on it but also seeing how difficult it was to actually affect change. And yet it was happening. So that dilemma kind of stayed with me. I didn't feel I was a person who's going to spend all my life dedicated to practice. I liked science a lot. And so I pursued physics, it turns out. But slowly but surely throughout my life, I was able to bring the two themes together. And 
in some sense, cities are the vehicle to that change. So my path took me through physics and then eventually to the Santa Fe Institute, where a lot of us, I think, thinking about complexity, go through or at least spend some time. So at that time, Jeffrey and colleagues had done a lot of their work in biology to do with metabolism and biological scaling and organisms, as it became known. And I think that Jeffrey was starting to uh, cast an eye towards human organizations and human societies. So we started looking, a bunch of us who at the time were younger, right? We just started saying, well, you know, you people have a lot of great ideas, but what about the data? Can we actually think about some of these things? And so, you know, almost the first kind of little data set we dealt with was that we plotted wages. So basically the wages that people make in cities of various sizes in the U.S., as was the case, against population. And, you know, it probably is not surprising to anyone hearing that in the largest cities in the country, typically wages are higher. So in New York City, wages are higher than in a small city. But what was surprising is there was a very, very clean pattern that when you plot them in a certain way, so, you know, in scaling plots, it's a power law. So if you plot them in in logarithms, uh, it turns out that it's a straight line. And then it means essentially that as you consider cities that are double the size, you had an increase in about 15, 16% in wages. Very, very clean pattern. And then we looked at this over time. There was data like this since 1969, it turns out, absolutely conserved. So it just blew our minds. But what was interesting about this, so we, we came to talk about that pattern as being a super linear pattern, meaning that wages are increasing faster than proportionally, linearly. So that's why they're higher in larger cities. But then there were no superlinear patterns in biology. Everything was sublinear. It was sort of a saving in energy with body size. So this is a new thing. So that was a big puzzle to begin with, but very interesting because it meant in some sense people made more money, they spent more money, life goes faster, a bunch of things were happening. What was very important is that we started seeing that pattern in other data in quantities that were not economic to do with crime and behavior and many other things. So this acceleration of social life has a very simple mathematical signature. So that was kind of magical. So what was the key focus for you when you started to look at cities? What was the big questions that were making you very excited about it? The thing that's so interesting goes back to what I said in the beginning, which is that places of transformation, places where new things happen that no one really understands, right? That we do collectively. And that I think have this, to me, a feeling of discovery, of revelation, of fascination for, you know, amazing buildings or new forms of artistic expression or fashion or music or some of the pathos of the human condition as well. There's suffering and transcendence and all the great themes of humanity. But the fact that you have a system that does this in a way that is not just contingent to a single person or their story, but that is actually general and that might work in many different places. But then what we started seeing is that the infrastructure of cities, things like the surface of roads, or all the built-up area taken up by buildings and roads and public places, that that was sublinear, so that that was a little bit less per capita. And again, the number was not 75%, but it was more like 85, 86%, 84%. So there was this other magic number that started popping up, popped up in socioeconomic activity in some sense above one and below one in these Purely material, not the way things work, but sort of the material footprint of cities. So this is kind of, at first, I think, 
particularly Jeffrey thought this was the analog of metabolism. But as we poked at it more, it wasn't. It was more to do with infrastructure of cities. And so this became a little bit the puzzle for me and for all of us to try to understand if this pattern was consistent and then how to explain it, which in the end is very simple. At the beginning was obviously, as always, not obvious. So the fact that we have sublinear behavior in terms of infrastructure and built up spaces means that there are more people per area, right? And so the interpretation was that all these superlinear things are the product of human interactions that produce socially, whether it's crime or wages or forms of innovation or many, many other quantities, almost anything that we do together, epidemics, all kinds of things. But then the other effect is just squeezing us in. So you could see immediately that what's happening is that if we're more squeezed in, it's easier to interact. So the two effects are essentially related by that, that cities, I came to talk about this in terms of the calling cities a social reactor, a reactor, and I can explain why, but basically that they bring us together in just such a way that they also increase the rates of sustained socioeconomic interaction, and then all these products accelerate the unit time. And that's basically the effect, is that then you now have to do a little bit of more math to explain the specific characteristics of infrastructure. They have to do with the fact, for example, why do we build highways and local roads? Why do we have subway systems? So it turns out there's sort of a hierarchical system of infrastructure that has essentially a fixed costs per benefit of interaction. So the costs of moving around stuff in these systems, again, if you've been to a larger city, you know it's a bit more congested. And that those costs of congestion of and all the infrastructure be a bit more broken because it has more things on it all the time. And what that means then is that the city as a cost-benefit thing can exist at all different sizes. So it can exist across all these different sizes, but you know its intensity, so to speak, of both socioeconomic interaction, socioeconomic life, but also the intensity by which we use infrastructure and associated costs go up, but go up in a special way that allows these very intense forms of socioeconomic organization to exist. Yeah, this is a different way of looking at cities in the sense that, you know, we, we expect, don't we, when we look around the world, all this diversity, but yet despite this, you've got this super linear behavior and you've got this sublinear behavior. What insights do we get out of this that seem even at odds with how we think about, how we've thought about cities in the past and in terms of what we, we need to do to make cities better, in inverted commas? The first thing to say is quite obvious, right? Which is that the primary thing about cities is not the buildings and the infrastructure, even though we often do planning that way. We think about those things first. The most fundamental thing, which is always sort of, it's as a mental experiment, you can ask what is there in every city that has ever existed, simple cities, poor cities, rich cities, is basically not just people, but people interacting with each other. So that's what a city is fundamentally, is that we do that over space and time. And we do that in a sustained way, right? That doesn't go away. So humans, of course, have had forms before cities of doing this by getting together temporarily in camps or in festivals or religious things, but they didn't last. So the potential was there, but they needed to invent something that would allow them to do this like all the time. So that took a little while, but once we start doing that and we got sort of the first cities, then everything changed, right? We get all these inventions of writing, culture, things that persist, right? Not to say they didn't exist before, but but some of its expressions and technologies do change and become permanent. So these things last in a way that is surprising and that sometimes we're not aware of. So that's the primary thing. Then the rest of things that we have as instruments for urban planning and policy 
tend to be supportive, if they're done well, of those things, to create services, to create buildings that are good places to live, to create mobility systems and transportation systems that allow people on a large scale to move around between places where they live and places where they can in interact and, and work, right? So, but you have to see these things as serving this general purpose of allowing people to interact in a, in a good way. So that's sort of a basic thing, but I think that changing perspective that social interactions are primary and not secondary is very important. I think a lot of urban planning and policy addresses cities as a bunch of problems, you know, all the problems that cities do create. And this perspective allows you to see that these, these problems, whether they are crime or epidemics and several diseases, the diseases of interaction and crowding or pollution sometimes and so on, that these things are in some sense also part of the process. They're the result of these interactions and the conditions that are needed to support them, sometimes more energy use and so on. But there are ways to mitigate them and minimize them, right? By changing technology, by organizing the city in certain ways, by you know, encouraging people to regulate their socioeconomic interactions to be good and not bad and so on. So does that mean, Luis, that we put people together, we get all these social interactions, we get this super linear behavior, so we get you know more creativity, but we also get more crime and more disease problems as we're all squashed together. And then it's the infrastructure piece of that, the sublinear piece. Is that trying to mitigate the problems that the superlinear piece is producing? Is that a, one way to think about that? To some extent, I mean, what is required is that you can actually do the math for this, and it's done sort of my book and some of the papers, is that you can imagine a city without roads, right? And just buildings scattered around and without all the rest of the infrastructure. If you do it that way, you can still have some of these effects, but it gets very crowded, very disorganized very quickly. So at some point it tends to jam, to just not, not work, right? So what you see in every city then that changes a certain size is that it does develop a street network and public spaces and all this stuff. And then as it gets to more modern, bigger cities, then we start having a hierarchy of these infrastructures, not just local roads, but main roads and then highways and then subway systems. There are a couple of things that sublinear, but not with the same exponent. So one is the total area that the city occupies by all the built stuff. But then there's the networks of the city, the network of roads, the network of electrical cables, of fiber now, of pipes that carry water and sanitation. And those networks actually grow in volume a little faster than the underlying space. And that, for example, means that as cities get denser, particularly in central parts where they are, tend to be a little denser, they take over space. So you need to kind of stop putting them in the third dimension. You either put them usually underground, but sometimes, you know, with cables and so on, overground. Because these are incommensurate, you have to start managing them in a different way. And so some of the transportation systems like the highways and the subways, the words obviously already betraying the fact, are have to, you know, escape from the space where people actually live and interact, because otherwise they take over. So they're, they're beautiful things like this. But once you start understanding this, actually, you can do it the right way and support the movement and so on in ways where all these functions can be present and where you have scale invariance. So you can continue to create them to very, very large scales. And if you get that right, particularly on the infrastructure side of things, does that then help minimize the downsides of the superlinear stuff? Is that... Yes, to some extent. It allows space not to jam 
and things to move around. But then you still are left with the problem of all the possible socioeconomic interactions, good and bad. And that part then requires a different kind of infrastructure, right? Which has to do with conflict resolution being the most important. So all the way back to the first cities, you start having codes of laws and law enforcement. And what is interesting is that these laws very quickly start being impersonal, right? They start being not about this kind of people versus that kind of people, but they start being about anyone who does this will be punished in the same way. It's kind of amazing, right? Because it's kind of like, you don't know who's going to come and behave in that way. But we start actually finding ways to, in, in a weird backwards way, to be inclusive in that we're not necessarily singling out people. You know, it starts speaking to the need for cities to be open to people in the future, but people in the present as well, to have a certain range of behaviors, but not others. And so these typically are also super linear, right? So the things like this that sort of have to do with the... Um, regulation of the interactions themselves and to the extent that that's done by other organizations and people then those have to be superlinear as well right you have to fight superlinearity with superlinearity sometimes and in the research is there anything from a you know how we plan cities that that is obviously wrong or is obviously very inconsistent with with this sort of complexity view of how how a city works if you go back, you know, Plato had a quaint idea that how cities can only be so big. Plato and Aristotle had discussions about this, but Plato just mentioned a number, which is just weird. Um, I forget what it was, actually, something like 30,000, maybe less. 5,000 people, I think it was. So it's just like, sounds quaint from now. But so there's been this argument in general about that cities can only be of a certain size and we should stop urban growth. That is has been a central concept in, in urban planning forever, you know. In London, there's a green belt or several. Then always this question, I always get this question, how big can cities get? I said, well, according to this argument, you can keep on having cities that are bigger and bigger, and that's more or less what we observe, but they'll get more intense and you have to develop infrastructure that supports that and so on. But if you do all that, you could get a very, very large city. So the prospect for people like my kids who may live to see the end of the century is that we'll get cities maybe with 80 million people, so double the size of Tokyo today. So that will be a very intense, very interesting place. Maybe Lagos, Nigeria, or some of the cities of India. So, you know, that would be amazing. But based on these arguments, we can stop predicting what will feel like, what will look like, well, how people behave, and so on. You get a cup of coffee really fast, basically. <laughs> That's part of it as well, is that you, you walk faster in, in bigger cities. Yeah, yeah, you talk faster. There'll be all kinds of things. Why do we walk faster? I think it's just a really funny one that I quite enjoy. And you do talk about it in your book. That's the thing about when you have a scientific idea, right? The, the exercise always is to push on its scope until it breaks. And so on that first paper, actually, I started thinking, and Jeff and I had interesting conversations about this. We started thinking, well, if it's really this thing about human interactions that's going on, then we should see people, not only, you know, the interaction itself be about different things and be more of them, but people should change that behavior. We should see that not as, in some sense, a property of the city, but it should become a property of individuals, right? So we're playing with that idea, and I started looking for deeper in the literature, but you know, you always have to have a good question, otherwise you don't find what you're looking for. And so we found this data on walking speed, and it was very amusing how it was measured and so on, but it was fascinating. So people walk a little faster in larger cities. 
there are actually sort of two possible explanations. The measurements are not are consistent with both. So it's sort of a super linear effect. But one would be simply to say that the value of time, right? So this is more economics argument that the value of time is super linear. So your dead time walking from A to B should be reduced by that amount. So therefore you have to walk faster. The other one would be more on the energy that it takes to walk. And so the energy should be super linear. And so the velocity is V squared. So it's only the square root of that. So it could be the temporal dimension or it could be the energy and both are compatible with, with what is measured, uh, data at least I know. But in any case, it's almost an efficiency of behavior argument that you kind of want to be doing the things that matter and you want to minimize the time in between. It's interesting as an argument too, because I think this is something, for example, you asked about things about the way we plan. And this means that if you, you should take that argument seriously because we observe it, but you should plan, for example, transportation systems in cities that minimize that dead time as well, which we don't do very well. In principle, a subway, right, goes faster from A to B or a highway goes faster from A to B and you get those in larger cities, but not in smaller cities. But that should almost be the primary dimension of performance for a transit system, that it doesn't waste people's time and that allows them to go from A to B and so on. But a smaller time compatible with, with acceleration of behavior, and we don't do that. So one of the frustrating features that anyone who lives in a large city with, with crumbling infrastructure knows about is that often transit does not, is not engineered, it's not planned to respect people's time in that sense. And that means that people that have a choice sometimes on that reason alone, and there can be others, do not take these means that actually could save energy and be more sustainable. And how, Luis, does this fit in with, you know, the way, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but the way people talk about, you know, if you, you can't get out of the problem by building bigger roads. You know, people talk about that, that they didn't fill up with cars and you're back to the same traffic problems. How does that fit in with everything? Yeah, there's a very curious thing that when you do the math for this, I'll try to explain, but as you do the math, you understand that as you build these large, larger and larger cities, you need to build features of the infrastructure that support faster movement. You need to add these layers of infrastructure that allow you to go faster. And the way it all works mathematically that to produce something that could be a city of any size, to be scale invariant, as we say, is that there are very predictable features of those highways, you know, and they're observed in general. So when you look at a highway, actually, the flows of traffic are denser and faster. You kind of see this, but next time you're on an airplane, look down and look at how many cars there are in the small roads and how many cars there are in the highways. And you will find almost surely, I mean, unless it's a very weird time of day, but if it's time of day with enough cars, you'll see there are more cars per unit of area of road in the highways. But they're also going faster, right? So that's necessary because otherwise kind of things don't work very well. And the highways in particular would have to be much wider, which we usually don't want. So that's the way it works. So that means also that the highways are very, very sensitive to jamming. The moment the speed, for example, slows down a little bit, they jam. So almost all traffic jams happen in highways first, not in the local roads. So there's a law of jamming <laughs> that follows from this. That's always the highways to jam first. So, so you, you could pay more attention to that and find ways to manage traffic. You know, people do a little bit of this, but they don't take these ideas all the way. So, for example, because it's an interaction effect, even though, you know, our cars are material things, 
be much better if maybe there'll be a future like this where the cars can talk to each other, right? Instead of just having, you know, just looking at the car ahead or having Google tell you what to do and so on. So there's sort of an interaction effect that produces jamming, but it's particularly sensitive in these places that need to move very fast and large flows, which are the highways. This is also why the subways get very, you know, another experience, which is related to this, but it may not be, is that the subways get very crowded, right? But obviously the solution should be to have a faster flow where you have more trains and, and, and more capacity and so on. But in the subway, it's a little harder to do because you typically only still have one line. So you need to move them faster and have larger stations and so on. If you don't, so it's a different way to do it. But the essential element of that is the flow, which is quantity of people per unit time. So stand with, with infrastructure or a lack of infrastructure, can you talk about slums and probably start with just how many people in the world live in slums and the challenges that presents? Yes, of course. So it's often at least the more extreme face of poverty, particularly urban poverty. So it's a very important, very delicate issue, right? Because it can be particularly tragic that people cannot have access to the same living conditions as other people, right? But just two things to be said. The first thing effectively is the following, that we've we've been talking about cities as networks, having certain infrastructure, supporting people interacting with each other and so on. But this is not a given, right? In any real city, these networks need to form. They're not always there. And so what happens in a slum effectively is that the people come first and settle, but the infrastructure, the network is not there. So the signature is typically that you don't have enough streets, buildings don't have street access, and therefore they don't have services, but they also don't have some of the cultural infrastructure, we're calling an institutional infrastructure like addresses or land rights or land obligations for that matter, and so on, you know, taxes and services and so on. So the city in some sense is forming, it's not formed yet. And that means it looks primarily physical, that the physical network is not there, the infrastructural network, and that's true. But the consequence is also that the social economic network is not there for these people. So they're not integrated in the city, benefiting from all those interactions we were talking about in a way as other people can be. So to the extent that this latent state where the city is starting to be there, but it's not there all the way. So people are effectively trading a little bit the, the latent possibility of the city and some of the initial ones for a state of lesser connectivity, less access, less opportunity. So that's the way you would see it from the perspective of these theories. And it starts to basically tell you about the city as a complex system in a way that's not just structural, but it has a dynamics, it needs to form. And this has a, also an interesting counterpart in terms of shrinking cities, cities that have, so a slum in some sense, you have too much population for the infrastructure that you have, and you have to develop the infrastructure. It's more familiar to us in growing cities. But then you have also the opposite, cities that have too much infrastructure for the people that they have, partly because people have left, or the city used to be bigger. And this also creates other problems. We can get there if you want. But it's maybe less familiar, but it's becoming more common. So then I wanted to answer the second part of your question. You asked me how many people live in slums. So if you stop to think about it for a moment, you will start to see that it's not actually very simple to just say it's a certain number. Because in almost any city that's developing quickly, there are neighborhoods and situations where people have some access, but not full access. So it's not a binary variable that you have nothing or you have everything, right? There's sort of 
a gradation. But that being said, the United Nations has some estimates and some criteria for coming up with numbers. And these are part, for example, of Sustainable Development Goals. And the number, when it was first counted around 2003, this is at the time of the Millennium Development Goals, was about 1 billion people worldwide. So about one in seven then. Now there were 8 billion people. The number was just actually revised last month. And it's 1.1 billion people. Now this is a slightly smaller fraction of 8 billion, but nevertheless, it means that we haven't made really much progress. And in absolute terms, the situation has gotten worse. Now, in, now most of this population is in poorer developing, fast-growing cities a lot of them in Africa and in and Asia, South Asia and Latin America. But as we know, even in American cities and so on, we have things that we should be considering slums, like tent cities and, and so on. So there are sometimes things that we don't want to call slums that, by the UN definition, if you have no services and you uh, are in, in some land that is not supposed to be dedicated to housing or habitation, then that would be considered a slum as well. But anyway, so those are the numbers. So there's several ways in which you can go about and start looking at these issues. But because of what I said before, you can have a more objective view of slums by seeing places in cities that don't have development infrastructure so that people cannot have services and so on. So a lot of our research at the moment and also applied research in some cases is to develop these measures because now we have amazing measurements of street networks and buildings from satellite imagery. And so we can quantify this all the way down to every building. So we just did some work for Africa where we can quantify this all the way down to each city block and tell you the condition of that city block and how many buildings are connected and disconnected. And therefore, the character of the place in terms of these measures, which allow us to put a gradation on this level of infrastructure access and opportunity, which is different from saying this is slum versus this is not non-slum. That problem is very important, but it starts to tell you that the city's forming, and if we don't pay attention to what a city is in, in terms of these both socioeconomic and physical networks, we got to get it wrong because we often objectify the situation in ways that are hurtful and also not helpful to solve the problem. So does that mean that if we've got a slum that the fundamental, and I had never thought of it like this, so without the infrastructure, which I think is, is easy to see, that you can't realize the benefits of us all being together. You can't get the super linear good things happening. We're basically just a crowd of people. We're not a connected crowd of people like we, we've been talking about in terms of cities. Yeah, for two reasons, right? So certainly that's that. You cannot move around, uh, cannot be recognized as belonging to the city because you don't have an address to get a job or to get a social security number, whatever that is in various countries. So there's that. But there's also the fact that you don't have services. You'll be in an insecure situation. So a lot of your time and effort will be dedicated to survival under those conditions. And so you cannot be this interactive, creative being that we're imagining the condition of living in cities can be at its best. So it's a number of things. And all of them, of course, have very clear human implications that go beyond so the, these functions. But yeah, you know, you should look at these things in terms, if you want to think more like an urban planner of the 21st century, is how would you have these functions delivered to people such that they can become sort of a fully enabled, fully enfranchised urbanite, rather than somebody surviving and at the margins of that network.
And do you have an example of something that's being done that is is really working well in that space? Yeah, so, you know, it's a complicated problem because also delivering physical networks is slow. The great transformation has been from, and this is sort of now endorsed by many policy agencies and development agencies, including UN agencies, but increasingly also the World Bank and so on, is the idea that you shouldn't just raise slums and move people to social housing or some other housing, which tends to, you know, in terms of housing, sometimes better than living conditions, but in terms of the socioeconomic organization of life, typically much worse, because people lose their often very necessary and fragile social networks and livelihoods and so on. You know, it's a violent transformation from that point of view. So the big transformation has been to not do that, and at least whenever possible, to do what I was implying and what we're implying in our conversation, which is to deliver the infrastructure in place, to develop street networks, to create address systems, to create, you know, rights and obligations of using that land. And therefore, essentially to regularize the city, but also to create the kind of extension of the city that's more organic, right? That's not just an urban plan that is just ruled out, but something that actually upgrades is the term that's usually used, the current living conditions of people, but that also in place as much as possible in situ, but then deliver modern functions, right? So there's a third reason to do this that maybe is less about people. It is ultimately about people, but it has to do with the fact that urban fabrics that evolve in this more organic way and so on are much more beautiful, much more desirable down the line. So if you think, you know, we were talking, comparing our experience of cities in Europe, whether it's in Europe or in Asia or Latin America, places that have old bits of cities, right? Once they have services and they're pleasant places to be and to live. What you find is that they're very attractive. People want to be there, right? They're quaint, they have history, they're symbolic, they have culture. And and that's the kind of place they have a human scale. And so those places become sometimes the most expensive and most desirable ones or ideal spaces for social life in other cases. So we don't know how to do that using industrial means doing urban planning and what we end up constructing in these other ways ends up being destroyed or demolished because it's not desirable and doesn't last. So we'd be better off actually if we build these environments in an organic way that responds to the needs of people and to the growth of cities, but also creates better quality ultimately urban environments that can last and don't erase people's histories and people's struggles, but actually I guess, ultimately channel them into the future, but also celebrate a little bit the struggle, but also the transcendence, perhaps, that's possible in cities. And just to finish, Luis, what's the most surprising thing your research has thrown up when it comes to cities? <laughs> There's so many things, you know, again, I get used to them. But, you know, there are moments when my good friends and colleagues, Scott Ortman, at some point, so we had done all this work for contemporary cities. And I was writing up some of the theory that predicts some of the things that we're talking about in terms of, you know, what kind of networks we have and how to get these numbers out. They're this one six, so these 15, 16% kind of things. And a colleague called Scott Ortman, who's an archaeologist, also at the Santa Fe Institute, walks into my office and asks me to explain to him, I do. And he turns to me and says, well, you know, it's not about cities. It could be about any network that has these characteristics and certainly not about modern cities. So I should see the, this in my data as well. 
I said, okay, do you? He said, I don't know, I have to look. So he had all this data actually from, you know, it culminates with the Aztecs in the basin of Mexico. So basically the, the region before that today is Mexico City, but has had sort of 2000 years of various civilizations before the Spanish arrived. And, and there was a very good survey there and it just blew our minds. It's exactly what we would have predicted for modern cities. The scale's different, the technology's different, the culture's different. And the reason why that was also so amazing is that there was, so the scaling patterns are essentially the same that we see in modern cities, these densifications of infrastructure and so on. And there had been an episode of cultural comparison in, in the 60s and 70s, I think early 80s actually, by a very well-known person here at the University of Chicago that had considered this the mother of all urban experiments in the sense that the people that had come to the new world, they came at a time when there were no cities, it was before there were any cities. So whatever they came up with was independent from the cities of the old world that we had in Europe and Asia and so on. And these were some of the biggest cities that ever existed in America. So they came up basically with the same solution, which is amazing, right? So this kind of reinforces the idea, you know, and the chronicles of the Spaniards arriving and describing that city as in comparison to Rome or Constantinople, the cities of, of the cities of uh, Spain, saying how much bigger and better it was, even though it had a lot of canals and so on, some things that were different, but just to them it was instantly recognizable, right? As a, as a great city. So that, you know, it tells you that there's something special about this kind of thing, that cities do something quite general. And then, you know, all these results, they're more recent. We had that result that blew our minds a little bit about walking speed. But that has led now to a lot of research that we're still doing and continue to do because it's such a rich vein to do with human behavior. And so we, we had a recent paper, for example, looking at mental health. And we had this uh, student, Andrew Steer, who thought about, he was a PhD in psychology. And so we started looking at mental health and psychology of people living in cities of various sizes and different circumstances. And so, for example, we found out that people in larger cities in the US tend to have lower rates of depression. This is interesting because again, the beginning of social science, almost, you know, sociology, social psychology, and so on, uh, with people looking, observing basically very fast urbanization at the time in Europe, 18th century, early 20th century, and then in the US, and saying how horrible this was for mental health because these people were all being sped up and they didn't have social structures and institutions that were typical of, of rural areas, the way people lived for a long time. This surely is bad. But at least in some ways, I'm not saying it's not, doesn't have bad dimensions, but at least in the sense of exciting people and making them less depressed. It seems to work. And so the mechanism there it was had been known is that people that have larger social networks tend to be less depressed. So it follows from the general argument that if that's true in general of people in cities, that should be observable. And so it is. So that's kind of amazing, right? So we start seeing that the city is not just a thing out there, a bunch of buildings and so on. It's in you. It's in me, right? It's in the way we come to be, who we are and how we behave and even how we think. So we're doing a lot of work on this because I think that this idea that we started the conversation today with, that cities are places in which societies build their futures, right? The way you have development and, and change, in some sense, is what we feel individually as humans is possible for us individually, right? And so that should have a signature in how people see the future, how they relate to each other, how motivated they are. And it's not to say that everyone feels exactly that thing, 
but it should have a signature that, for example, has to do with how we plan the future, how much we invest in knowledge and education and learning, even if sometimes it's informal. And so we're looking for those signatures and try to falsify some of these hypotheses to see if they're there or not, and to what extent they then start giving us a theory of human development that is of humans and not just a macro structural theory. So I think that that's possible and it will appear. But we have all these, you know, stepping stones that give us indications that that's what's going on. Luis, thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.